Now take out your note sheet for tonight's sermon. You'll find there the, the questions and answers for Lord's Day 41. I'll read the questions and we'll all confess the answers together. What is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? that God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Does God, in this commandment, forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. Before we begin and get into uh, the scripture, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word tonight. Almighty God, we confess that without you we can do nothing. So we pray that you would illumine your sacred word by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. You shall not commit adultery. Perhaps no commandment stings more than the seventh, especially in, in this age, an age when uh, it's the common idea that your body is your own, you can do with it what you like. And the same with your sexuality. It's your choice. It's up to you. Do what you want. You can do as you please. You're free in that way. How dare anyone tell you what to do? Much less God. How dare God tell me what to do? But he does. The word of God raises an objection to the spirit of the age. It's God who owns our bodies. They're not ours to use however we want. So as our creator, and for Christians, as our redeemer also, God has every right to tell us what we can and can't do with our bodies, including our sexuality. And this is what the seventh commandment is about. So how do we who joyfully confess that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, how do we glorify God with our bodies? How do we show him gratitude through the way we use our sexuality? How do we keep the seventh commandment as Christians? The Catechism gives us, as it usually does, a negative and positive uh, regarding this commandment. On the negative side, we must avoid all unchastity because God condemns it. Now here, unchastity covers all sexual sins. Um, anything that is against nature, be it incest or homosexuality or self-stimulation, and also sins that corrupt and twist the natural order that God has put in place. Sins like adultery, the one mentioned explicitly in the seventh commandment, as well as fornication. Now, there's no need to get into uh, every list uh, of sins that would fall under this commandment or what they mean. And uh, parents, you can elaborate, you can answer questions as you see fit in this regard. Uh, but the point is that all these sins that fall under this label unchastity 
are distortions of God's will for human sexuality. God wants human beings to direct their sexual energy to one target only, and that's committed, covenant, heterosexual marriage. Anything outside of that is what the catechism means by unchaste. That's what a violation of the seventh commandment is. So that's the negative. And then on the positive side, not only are we to avoid unchaste things, but we are to detest them, to hate them as God does. So not only do we refrain from doing them, but we, we inwardly uh, detest them. Now we should be careful to see the catechism doesn't say that we hate unchaste people. And I think we need to be careful to not let our hatred for these sins turn into a hatred for our neighbors. That said, the second thing we're instructed to do on the positive side is to live a decent and chaste life, whether we're married or not. And what that means is to live in sexual purity. And so whether you are married or not, that means having your gaze fixed on only one person. Uh, If you're married, that means your spouse. God has given you a spouse to look at. You're not looking around for other people. You're not looking around at other people. You are channeling your sexuality toward your husband or your wife. This also means staying committed to your husband or wife. Um, As we saw in Mark 10, when we were in Mark, as well as parallel passages, unlawful divorce and remarriage are violations of the seventh commandment. You can go back and listen to uh, Pastor Danny's sermon on Mark 10 if you want to hear more about Jesus' teaching on divorce. But on the other hand, if you're single, living a decent and chaste life also means fixing your gaze only on one person, and that's Christ. Now, Paul has very good things to say about uh, a single Christian life in 1 Corinthians 7. He says to those who are uh, widowed or unmarried to remain as they are, as he is. And so singles in the church are not a junior varsity team, even though that's sometimes the message that that can come across. It's not true. For those who are single, you're, you're worthy, valuable members of the church. And so your aim is to serve Christ and to keep your eyes fixed on him, to dedicate yourself to him and love him by serving others. And when it comes to your sexuality, you, you make those decisions in light of the fact that you belong to Christ. You may not belong to a spouse, but you do belong to somebody. You're covenantally united to somebody, and that person is Christ. A passage that's really helpful on this topic is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. And we'll be there for a while, so you can turn there if you'd like to follow along. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. And uh, as Paul is doing in the rest of this letter, in this passage, he's correcting the Corinthians. He's teaching them, uh, fixing some misconceptions they have. And here he's actually responding to certain things that they've said Uh, perhaps in a letter that they wrote to him. And the first thing they say is there in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Now there is a way we can understand this positively. Perhaps Paul may have even said that in a certain context. True liberty is found in Christ. Those whom the Son sets free are free indeed, free from the consequences of sin, the tyranny of sin, free from the Old Testament ceremonial laws, free from the traditions of men, all these things are true of Christians. But the Corinthians were twisting this idea of freedom in Christ in order to justify their sin, using it as an excuse to indulge themselves in sexual sin. So Paul replies, not all things are helpful. And he also adds, but I will not be dominated 
by anything. Sin pretends to offer what only Christ can really offer. Sin pretends to offer you a free life. Do whatever you want. Indulge whatever desires you have. You're free to do that. But it's a trick. And those who give in to sin find themselves in bondage to their sin, dominated by those sins. And that's what Paul's telling them to avoid. Paul's telling the church that Christian freedom is not an excuse to do anything you want to do. Because it's Christian freedom. It's freedom in Christ. It's not an absolute freedom to indulge your fleshly desires. And he unpacks that more as we go through the passage. But first he quotes the Corinthians again in verse 13. They're saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. So it seems they're, they're analogizing their hunger for food with their desire for uh, these sexual uh, deviancies. Sexual pleasure is as natural and as necessary as eating, so why not go for it, they're saying. On top of that, the body is only uh, sort of the, the, the meat suit that, that houses the soul. The soul is the thing that's really important. That's the common Greek idea at the time. Uh, the soul was eternal. Uh, And the body just kind of, I mean, that's the shell that it lives in. So it doesn't really matter what we do with the body. God's going to destroy it anyway. But Paul completely disagrees. The body is not destined for destruction. Look ahead at verse 14. God is pro-body. He he raised Jesus' body from the grave, and he's going to raise all the bodies of those who are in Christ on the last day. Christian salvation is the gracious rescue of both soul and body, And so it matters what we do with our bodies. In the next three verses, Paul continues to to drive at this point by laying out this this tight argument in verses 15 through 17. The first premise of that argument is that the bodies of Christians are the body parts of Christ. We're like his limbs and his organs because we're united to him by the Holy Spirit. The second Uh, aspect of his argument is that sexual intercourse produces this profound union between the participants. That's why Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, sexual union creates a new reality, this oneness with another person. And so because both of those things are true, the Christian, the Corinthian, who has uh, this kind of union with a prostitute is uniting Christ's body with a prostitute. And that's unthinkable, Paul says. And so in verse 18, he gives the command that he's been building up to. uh, That's the main point of this passage. Flee from sexual immorality. And when Paul says sexual immorality, he's not just talking about prostitution, the example that he's been using. It's the same thing as the catechism means when it says unchastity. It's all sexual sin, everything outside the bounds of covenant heterosexual marriage. Flee from it. Run as fast as you can from that stuff, Paul says. Don't stay around and flirt with the temptation. Flee, as Joseph did, from Potiphar's wife. Not only for the reason he just explained in in 15 through 17, that it brings dishonor to Christ because we're members of Christ's body, but also because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Of course, other sins involve the body, and and other sins harm the body. Drunkenness and gluttony are are obvious examples. But those are bodily abuses of of non-bodily substances. Sexual immorality is a bodily abuse by the body itself. It's a direct misuse of, 
of the body. A body which, as Paul has been explaining, doesn't belong to the Christian. Our bodies are not our own. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Each one of us is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity dwells within our bodies. This is a high honor, and it comes with a high level of responsibility. If you engage in sexual sin, you're harming your own body, but on top of that, Paul says, you're dishonoring God's very presence who dwells with you. We all need to be good hosts to our divine guests, Paul is reminding us. So we cannot and we must not live for ourselves. We're not our own. We're not autonomous. We're not free. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who bought us at the high price of his shed blood. And because we've been redeemed from sin, every Christian is a slave to Christ. We belong to him. He's our master now. We're not dominated by the sins that we once engaged in, as Paul alluded to in verse uh, 13 and 14. We're not dominated by those things. Instead, we belong to Christ. And this slavery is good news. Slavery to Christ is perfect freedom because it liberates us to delight in God's law, the law of perfect freedom, as James calls it. So Christian, Paul is reminding you in 1 Corinthians 6 to glorify God with your body. May your entire bodily life, including your sexuality, bring honor to Christ's name. In question and answer 109, the catechism adds an important uh, clarification and expansion. So far, we've been talking uh, mostly about actions, things we do, the way we use our bodies. But God isn't only concerned about what we do, but also with how we think and how we feel. As we've just heard from Paul, our bodies are temples of God's Holy Spirit. But as human beings, with both body and soul, we must keep both clean, catechism reminds us. And how, how do we do this? By avoiding not only unchaste actions that we've been discussing, but also unchaste looks and talk and thoughts and desires and whatever may incite someone to them. Some of these are, are, are self-explanatory. We can fill in the gaps for ourselves, but I think a couple comments are worth uh, bringing up here. First, an unchaste look um, not only includes what we might first think of, the kind of look that we'll read about in Matthew 5 in just a moment, kind of lustful look, but an unchaste look might also mean a sort of enticing look, a look a person might give when seeking to lure someone into sexual sin, a kind of seductive look, and that's also out of bounds, the catechism is, is reminding us. I think that's worth mentioning. And second, on, uh, on the phrase, whatever may incite someone to them, this is a very comprehensive statement, right? Whatever, anything. So we can think of lots of examples here. Uh, drunkenness, again, being an, an obvious example that often leads to uh, kinds of sexual sins. But I think one relevant, uh, important issue for us, uh, for all of us, but especially perhaps for women, is the wearing of inappropriate clothing. And I know this can be a highly sensitive issue, especially for those who grew up uh, in church um, i thinking uh, this week as I was preparing, growing up at youth camp, there were very specific rules in this regard. And it's, that's somewhat understandable when you're running a camp. You have to set guidelines, but 
you know, tank top straps had to be at least two finger lengths wide, and if you were gonna wear shorts, they had to go past your, your fingertips while your hands were at your sides, these kinds of things. I'm not gonna go there, that would be a step too far. It's not really up to me or for anyone else to decide uh, exactly what the line is between appropriate and inappropriate clothing. But that's a question we should be thinking about. Of course, we'll see in a moment again when we get to Matthew 5, Jesus says that the one lusting is responsible for the sin. Right? So just because you're being lusted at doesn't mean you're responsible for that sin. But does that mean that we can dress however we want without even thinking about that at all? The spirit of the age once again answers loudly, yes, your clothes are, are for you. They're not for anybody else. Wear whatever you want. Wear as much or as little as you want. Show off what you want. Don't worry about other people at all. But I think Christians should give a different answer. We see this principle in, 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 in the Christian life of deferring to others. We see it in Romans as Paul was willing to give up eating meat and drinking wine. Perfectly fine things for him to do. But he, he was willing to give those things up in order to prevent a brother or sister from stumbling. And I think the same principle applies to lots of different areas, including this one, to the way we dress. So I think a couple questions that can help us here. First, even just thinking about yourself and the way you're presenting yourself. Are the clothes you're putting on putting forward parts of your body or your body as something to be gazed at? Is it objectifying you, the clothes that you're wearing? And then second, regarding other people, are you dressing with the love of others in mind, with your weaker brothers or sisters in mind? Will your choice of clothing cause them to stumble? We want to avoid unchaste actions and thoughts and desires, but we also want to avoid the things that lead to them. And as Christians who consider others more highly than ourselves, I think we want to do that even as we think about the way that we dress. Well, now we'll, we'll go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, uh, as I've already alluded to it a couple times. Uh, Matthew 5, 27 to 30, uh, a text that uh, explains why the commandment adds this uh, question and answer 109, why uh, this issue of the seventh commandment isn't just about actions. Jesus is giving his sermon on the mountain. He's, he's just addressed anger as the root of murder, and now he addresses lust as the root of adultery. And it's a natural transition, not only because the, uh, the seventh commandment follows the sixth, but because anger and lust are, are similar to one another. Both seek power over other people, but through different emotions. Anger denigrates people through hatred, and lust denigrates people through desire. But both are selfish. Both seek to control others. Both are false views of other people. So the passage begins with Jesus saying, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, he doesn't say looks at a woman, but looks at a woman lustfully. So it's important to understand what kind of look he's talking about. He's talking about a prolonged, deliberate looking, a staring and staring with a, a specific purpose. Every look has a purpose. Some are innocent. And I think it's important to say as well here that this is not saying that uh, Jesus avoid, uh, is wanting us to avoid looking at beautiful people. I think it's, 
there are innocent, there are, are ways to look at beautiful people that God has given us. He's given us beauty, and he's placed it in his creatures. And I think there are ways to enjoy even human beauty. But that's an innocent purpose. To look at a woman or a man lustfully is to look at them with a wicked purpose, to continue looking, to stare at them with the desire to possess them or to use them. The kind of staring when the other person becomes less than human, when he or she is simply a way for you to enjoy yourself. Life in God's kingdom is about honoring and loving and protecting and serving others. And that's the problem with lust. When you look lustfully, the person you're looking at is not being honored or protected or being violated. And so Jesus says not to look lustfully, but he also condemns the desire to do that kind of looking, the desire to deny the image of God in another person and to turn them into a sex object. Jesus is giving a difficult command here. I'm sure we've all heard uh, from psychologists or whatever source that it's ridiculous to expect people, especially adolescents, to actually control their their sexual appetites and and urges. But what Jesus says about the salvation of the rich later in Matthew 19, I think applies here as well. What is impossible with human beings is possible with God. There are faithful spouses. There are chaste young people. Living a sexually pure life is not a lost cause. The Holy Spirit's power is real and active and in us. That's not to say, you know, this will be easy. Conquering these sins or any sins will be easy. They're deeply implanted in us in certain ways, and there are habits that we have to conquer, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But these commands are, are heavy blows to us, reminding us how much we are lost without Christ. They knock us down. But they knock us down so that we can ask the Lord once again to pick us up and dust us off and set us back on that narrow path with his help. And so in verses 29 and 30, we see how seriously lustful looking must be addressed by followers of Christ. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is telling his disciples that decisive action must be taken. Whatever the habit is, whoever the person is, whatever the thing or device or whatever it is that seems essential, that seems that you can't get rid of it, it seems a part of you, is actually ruining you. Jesus is saying. And his recommendation is immediate, permanent surgery, not a months-long rehabilitation program. He's talking about um, more than a change in diet and exercise. He's talking about amputation. These are drastic measures. The right eye and the right hand, as the, as the parts that he chooses, those may have uh, visual and manual implications, but I think it's best to leave the interpretation vague here. Those who were hearing Jesus would have known, their consciences would have told them what their right eye was that they needed to remove, what their right hand was that they needed to cut off. And so I think we know as well when we hear those words from Christ what we need to do. And the Lord's hyperbole here also communicates that 
Addressing sexual sin will be difficult and painful. You only have one right eye and one right hand. There's no replacing them. But as bad as losing them might feel, it can't come close to losing your whole life in hell. We might feel that we're losing out on certain pleasures or or being restricted and losing out on certain freedoms. But the amputation that Jesus is demanding here for kingdom life will be worth it. Because it's a thousand times better to enter heaven half-blind than to see hell with perfect vision. And so, to, to close, I'm going to follow the example of Kevin DeYoung in his wonderful book on the Ten Commandments and, and just read passages of Scripture. Three messages to three groups of people. First, to those who are, who are tempted and feel drawn and maybe are dabbling in sexual sin, intrigued by it. This is what God says to you. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Second, to those who are trying to get away with something, To those like the Corinthians who think that they can twist this truth of Christian freedom as an excuse, as a license to satisfy your unchaste sexual desires. Hear what God says to you. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And then third, to those who are grieved over sin, who hate what you do uh, so much that you're tempted to even hate yourself, to those who, who humble yourselves before the cross, admitting that you are sexually sinful in repentance, Hear what God says to you. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Brothers and sisters, as we seek to serve our merciful, forgiving God, let's remember that we don't follow this commandment. We don't follow any of his commandments in order to be saved, but because we've been saved. Paul reminded us even of of that in 1 Corinthians 6 tonight. He didn't say, uh, honor God with your bodies in order that he might purchase you with a price. He said you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So friends, the only chaste The only pure human being who ever lived was the Lord Jesus. And it's his perfect purity that we receive that's been credited to us. He satisfied God's demands for us. And so, since he has purchased us, since he has redeemed us by his blood, we can pursue chastity in freedom and in hope and in the power of his spirit. So let's pray toward that end. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, even though uh, it comes to us as a, a difficult word. Holiness does not come easy to us fallen sinners. So we thank you also for Christ and his saving work on our behalf, for him accomplishing our salvation. We obey you out of gratitude for your great grace. So we thank you also for sending your spirit to dwell within us, to make us temples of your Holy Spirit. What an honor. Help us to live in such a way that that honors him in return. May we channel our sexuality into a life of chastity, whether married or not, so that we might bring glory to you, our loving God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would please take out uh, the liturgy sheet. Once again, we'll move into a time of prayer for the next few minutes.